You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. on Facebook. We're just going to give people a moment to enter Zoom and see that we've gone live on Facebook. Thank you everyone so much for joining us. We're just connecting our uh, social media feeds. So we will get started in just a moment. All right, and we are all connected. Take it away, Kelly. Thanks, Tracy. Good evening. I'm Kelly Shimabukuro, Chief of Programs and Outreach at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you so much for joining us to hear from Erica Green, Wanda Jones, Brandon Sodenberg, Baynard Woods, and Maryland State Senator Jill P. Carter tonight. And thank you to Open Society Institute Baltimore for your continued partnership and the dedication to creating a roadmap for change. Before we officially start the program, I wanted to fill you in on some ways to continue connecting and engaging with the Pratt Library. We have sidewalk service at 14 of our libraries, so you can still access physical materials as well as mobile printing at these libraries. On November 4th, we began welcoming you back into the library with public computer reservations. In-person public computers use will be available at the Central Library, Southeast Anchor Library and the Pennsylvania Avenue branch by appointment only. We hope you will also join us for Not for the Fated Heart tomorrow night. Senator Barbara Mikulski and Ambassador Wendy Sherman will be in conversation at 7 p.m. on Zoom and Facebook Live to celebrate the virtual dedication of the Senator Barbara Mikulski Room. And they'll talk about empowering the next generation and more. Details about everything I've mentioned can be found on prattlibrary.org. After today's program, if you're able, we hope you'll support our local independent bookstore and purchase your copies of I Got a Monster and Five Days from the Ivy Bookshop. Now I'm thrilled to pass this on to Tara Huffman, Director of Criminal and Juvenile Justice of the Open Society Institute Baltimore to introduce our speakers tonight. Thank you. Thank you and good evening everyone. My name is Tara Huffman. I am director of the Criminal and Juvenile Justice Program at Open Society Institute Baltimore. For those of you who may not be familiar with OSI, we are the only US field office of the Global Open Society Foundations, which is an international group of foundations that works to build vibrant and inclusive democracies whose governments are accountable to their citizens. The mission of our work in Baltimore is to disrupt the longstanding legacy of structural racism, by supporting powerful social change movements led by and centering the needs, interests, and voices of historically marginalized communities and communities of color. We're thrilled to co-sponsor tonight's event with the Pratt since it gets to the very heart of our mission. All of the participants tonight have worked to uplift the voices and stories of Baltimore residents who are too often ignored, and we hope to continue to supporting all of them and their work. Um, so let me introduce your panelists for this evening. Erica Green is a Washington DC based New York Times reporter who covers the US Department of Education focusing on federal policy, 
educational equity and civil rights enforcement in the nation's K through 12 schools. Before joining the time, she covered the Baltimore City School System for the Sun and was part of the Sun team named the 2016 Pulitzer Prize finalist for breaking news coverage of the death of Freddie Gray and the unrest that followed. She collaborated with Wes Moore on the book Five Days, which details the April 2015 events through the eyes of Baltimoreans and as the Baltimore uprising unfolded. We are also joined tonight by Tawanda Jones, a Baltimore-based activist and one of the people profiled in Five Days. She is the sister of Tyrone West, who died in police custody in 2013. She and her family started West Wednesday, a weekly protest and safe ground to speak out against police brutality and murder. Jones and her supporters have moved West Wednesdays online and tonight's event is being broadcast as part of their weekly live stream. Jones is the mother of four children, a pre-K teacher and a freedom fighter. Brandon Soderberg was previously the editor-in-chief of the Baltimore City Paper and a contributing writer to SPIN. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Vice, The Village Voice, and many other publications. With Baynard Woods, he is co-author of I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad, which tells the story of the Baltimore Police Department's Gun Trace Task Force. Baynard Woods is a writer living here in Baltimore. His work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and many other publications. In addition to I Got a Monster, he is author of Coffin Point, The Strange Case of Ed McTeer, Witch Doctor Sheriff. Our moderator this evening is Maryland State Senator Jill Carter, who represents the state's 41st legislative district in Baltimore. She previously represented the district as a member of the House of Delegates from 2003 to 2016. Senator Carter is the daughter of the late Walter P. Carter, a revered civil rights activist and a central figure of Maryland's civil rights movement in the 60s and early 70s. Her mother, Zarita Joy Carter, was a public school teacher who specialized in early childhood education. Over to you, Senator Carter. Thank you so much, Tara. I wanna thank the Pratt Library and OSI for bringing this event and panel together and inviting me to participate. As a Baltimorean, I'm thankful for the work of each and every member on this panel tonight, and I'm honored to participate in this important discussion. I've read both books, and each book forced me to relive a range of emotions, many of which are still traumatic. Both books tell very important stories and highlight systemic maladies that must be fixed before we can achieve a city with a modicum of justice or racial equality. Readers are blessed to experience great storytelling and greater insight into the events around the 2015 uprising and the 2017 and 2018 Gun Trace Task Force saga and exposure. There is an unnamed character in each of the books. I'll call it the political misleadership class, which is usually referred to as the political establishment or the political power structure. We tend to treat this class as if it's some giant living in the sky rather than human beings we elect to actually represent us and have the, that have the responsibility and culpability for laws, policies, 
and the resources that govern our society, including policing and prosecution. Whatever you call it, can you talk about ways in which this unnamed character, as I call it, and its decisions over decades made Freddie Gray's life and death possible, made the Gun Trace Task Force the most corrupt squad in American policing possible? And that question is directed to any of the panelists that like to answer. But I would say the book authors. <laughs> I can go first. <clears throat> um, so, you know, I think what five days makes incredibly clear um, is that, you know, Freddie Gray was failed from almost the moment he was born, um, filled by, by failed policies for decades, whether it was the city's, you know, lack of action and remediating lead poisoned homes, um, whether, it, whether it was the school system um, that didn't get him the, the help that he needed, whether it was the systems in place that allowed his, you know, his, his mother to fall into addiction and not be able to pull herself out. Um, I, you know, whether it was the juvenile justice system that took him on after he was pushed out of school, um, did not provide him with the education or um, any, any of, of the measures that he needed to not go back out to do what he was doing when he was pulled up by police. Um, you know, it, it, it showed a real a series of systemic failures and I'm always, you have to forgive me, I'm always a little measured because um, I am still a reporter. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I, I think for, for five days, um, there were turning points in Freddie's life and we don't get too much into Freddie's life um, as much as we do his death. Um, but through the characters, I think each character illustrates a way that that leadership failed, um, whether it was Tawanda um, and her family and her and their quest for for justice, their pleas for justice, whether it was Greg Butler, who, you know, just got completely screwed by by a antiquated, you know, line item in a policy that no one even bothered. To, to, to ever revisit, um, whether it was, you know, Anthony, the owner of Shake and Bake, who, you know, the city leadership literally came in and took away oh. an institution that was working for children oh. and, and, you know, and, and took it away from him. And now what's become of it? I mean, every action had some consequence. Um, and I would say that, that that's what I think five days really um, illustrates. Yeah, and I think to add to that, in, in terms of the Gun Trace Task Force, and I got a monster, the, the fact that the economy of the city became the drug war, that decisions were made by this, by our politicians to really focus on, uh, you know, and, and we really tried to take the language seriously to really focus on waging war on its citizens, force people to be on one side of this war. And so you have people like Wayne Jenkins and Mamadou Gondo, who are from completely different worlds near Baltimore, in Baltimore or outside of Baltimore in the county. And they both decide to join the police force, not out of any desire to do, to serve necessarily or to do something good, but because these were the options available to them. And so then 
uh, with no oversight, the, with the way that the police department went, it was about serving the police department rather than serving the citizens. And yet that was to placate the politicians, the, the mayors and uh, who, who make commissioners heads rolls and roll and such. So they were willing to look the other way at the kind of corruption and the guys who were doing it uh, all over the city, whether they were dealing drugs or whether they were being cops were just trying to uh, find some economic opportunity for them to, to get by in this city. And I would add something Boehner and I have been talking about since the book came out, like it sort of helped us process elements of the story even after the book was published is this idea that the police, at least in Baltimore, but I think nationally, operate as essentially a special interest group that politicians in particular and the sort of leadership class need to cater to. And there's kind of a game going on there in which they kind of get whatever they want, whether that's a surveillance plane or more gear, more sniper rifles or whatever. And so I think that that's something we've really realized is that they're really advocating for themselves and their department, often against the wishes of the city, which is sort of, you know, really represented, I think, really strongly. I mean, something that five days does such a good job is showing the many, many, many ways that it affected people and people's responses and that it was going on before that. I mean, something that I was thinking about earlier today, Scott was thinking about Senator Carter was I was thinking about two things, which were, you know, in 2006, there was that ACLU, law, ACLU lawsuit about unconstitutional policing in Baltimore. At the end of 2005 is when the uh, King and Murray police scandal happened where these other cops were dealing drugs and working with drug dealers. So in 2005, 2006, we're exactly where, 10 years before our book takes place and where, and where five days takes place. And we kind of were running into the same exact problems and people like Senator Carter were calling attention to it. But again, there's this kind of leadership class that would rather not uh, wrestle with those things or upset this special interest group that is the police. Thank you. I agree. I used to say in Annapolis that um, we believed when it came to this one group policing law enforcement uh, industry or complex that we would um, allow them to make the laws rather than to govern us, rather than we make the laws to govern them. Um, Erica, five days. Um, yes. It's so multi-layered. You know, five days, it's really, you know, um, uh, 10 decades, really. There's yeah, so say 50 years. So many right. different things and topics from um, the history of Billy Murphy and, and William Donald Schaefer and the mayor's race and so many things. Um, it, it's a myriad of different characters, some of which um, are, are, are somewhat, somewhat surprising to me. Um, so my question to you is, how did you come across, how did you decide on this particular cast of characters and how, um, what, what, what was the reason behind selecting the ones that you did? And for instance, I was somewhat surprised to find John Angelos as a character, just because it, it seemed it, it was unusual in this type of a story. Um, and so why is his story and all of their stories important? Um, and and why, should, why should they matter to us then and now? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I, I obviously didn't choose the characters on my own. I mean, Wes, it's Wes's book. Wes had a, um, a lot to do with that. Um, and they are, they, they are um, pretty interesting. What I can speak to is what a lot of them... Um, represent and why they were important. Um, and in John Angelos, I will say, um, he represents a power structure in the, of the city. He represented, you know, the white 
wealthy families who a lot of these policies that we're talking about do not touch. He represented the white wealthy families who, you know, barely even knew a curfew was in effect, who was not, who did not have the National Guard march in through their, through, through their hoods, right? So, um, so, so he also, you know, he represents a part of, a, a part of Baltimore that runs really deep. He is power. And, um, and how he used it during that time, we thought was very important. <clears throat> Granted, he went to Twitter <laughs> as we do these days. Um, but for him coming from this kind of storied, you know, old Baltimore family, um, it was, you know, it was a big step for him. Um, so, and, and a lot of folks were, I remember that time, I actually remember when he decided to jump into the fray, um, a lot of folks were surprised and this all, you know, this all started because he was attacked by, um, by a reporter who didn't understand, who, who, who basically chose to chastise him for shutting down Camden Yards. Um, and so his, his understanding um, and, and being willing to speak up for, for what was happening outside of Camden Yards, uh, I think West thought was very important. Um, some of the other characters, I mean, Tawanda, um, as we say, I was very uh, heavily involved in, in, in her section in particular, um, which I was so honored to be a part of. But, you know, she said, we said, you know, before Freddie, there was Tyrone. Um, and she watched as all of this unfolded um, and her heart and she she unfolded with it. She took the lead. She stood up for him just as much as she did for her brother. And um and, but we didn't want people to forget, and I will never forget being a reporter on the ground. And I saw Tawanda at City Hall, and um, and I really—I'm not just saying this now. I really wondered how she felt watching this happen um, when this woman had been screaming from the rooftops, and I—I I imagine that it must have been incredibly painful. Yet she was there for Freddie and everyone like him. And I, that's very, very honorable and, and admirable. Um, and Tawanda should write a book herself. Uh, Greg, you know, Greg had the gas mask. Everybody wanted to know who was the guy. <laughs> everyone wanted to know how the hell Greg got a gas mask. So, um, <laughs> so he, and, and, and for him, um, I, I, was, I was intimately involved in, in, in parts of his story too. You know, when I found out Greg was the guy on TV, my heart sank because I, I, I knew what they were saying. I, you know, I knew what I was watching. I saw what I watched what happened, but I just always wondered like what I want people to know the Greg that I know. Um, and, and Greg represents a lot in the city. That's a whole other, Baynard should talk a bit about that as well. Um, Cause Greg really respects Baynard and um, I came second, second fiddle to, to Baynard um, in some ways when I was writing his story. But, um, you know, Greg represents, you know, the resilience, the demands we put on the ch our children in this city, um, the perseverance, but also, you know, the complete and, and utter like fed up, you know, like people, they are human. And I think what we see with Greg is that you know, you can only take but so much. Um, I'm trying to think of others because it was a bunch. Oh, Billy, Billy represents another power structure in the city that is ingrained. And, um, and you know, 
just as just as John Angelos says, you know, Billy Billy represents, especially for Black people in 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 the city, um, the power that you you can have and the leadership that you can um, have you know, in such a divided city in some ways. Um, and, and the community really turned to him um, during that time. Um, you know, I will just say during that, I will never forget during that time, people said Billy was running the city, not the, not, not the people who were elected to do so. I mean, I'm just being for real, right? So, um, so I'm rambling now, but um, I was going to say, well, you know, I, okay. I, don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to be measured. No one knows me to be. <laughs> well, somebody had to run the city during that time. Right. Right. Say, one of my favorite characters was actually Malik, who's really a sub character under Anthony Hamilton's story. But the way he stood up yes. for Shake and Bake and wouldn't allow anyone to mess with it. I love that. I don't know it was such a powerful moment. It was it was such a and, and they really did. They you know, our kids are resilient and they can only take but so much. Um, so, Tawanda Jones. Tawanda, uh, the story of your brother's killing by police two years before Freddie Gray was not captured on video. There were no citywide marches. No officers were arrested or charged. Your crusade for justice for Tyrone West, your support for the Gray family and all victims of police brutality were featured in the book, Five Days. You also, I met you because you came to Annapolis before Freddie Gray. And that's another story that is often untold that before Freddie Gray, Annapolis, we presented legislation for police reforms in Annapolis and it went on deaf ears and, and they turned a blind eye and then Freddie Gray happened and there was this panic to come together to create cosmetic legislation. But Tawanda was there from the beginning, I think all the way back to 2013 or 14 with Christopher West, I mean, Christopher Brown's bill. But what I'd like to know from you, Tawanda, is can you talk about what justice for Tyrone would mean at this point and the obstacles that you faced in demanding accountability? Are the officers that killed your brother still working in policing? What are the reasons that the state and the Baltimore Police Department have neither charged anyone or reopened any investigations in the face of new evidence? What are the reasons that you've been told? Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so first of all, I want to thank you. I said you know that you are my share because you always fight for things that are right. You've been fighting. Like, I remember spending the night down there in Annapolis testifying against the Office of Bill of Rights and, and the Christopher Brown law and things of that nature. But before I go into your question, which are great questions, I wanted to give a shout out to um, Baynard and Brandon as well as Erica and Westmore for these powerful, true books. Like, I mean, this is amazing and it's sad at the same time because having been, and I'll tell you guys, having been in literally in both of these books, and I'll explain why once I get into everything and answer my question, but having been a part of both of these books, it's horrible. And that just shows you the level of corruption 
right here in Baltimore City. But so my family and I, the West Coalition, shout out, um, we are family. Well, we have been on the ground now for 382 weeks, 2,674 days fighting nonstop for accountability, not just for my brother Tyrone, but for all the victims of police brutality. But when you have a corrupt system and then when you have, like we change mayors as we change clothes, we change commissioners as we change clothes. So basically, long story short, as we've been fighting for this, so-called accountability, what my family deserves. Because I feel like there is no justice, it's just us trying to hold folks accountable. But no family should never have to go through this. And then also to kind of dive back, there were videos of my brother. They just didn't ever touch surface because the very next day um, after my brother was murdered, me and my family galvanized from day one, literally day one, trying to seek and search for answers and we went on the block where my brother was murdered to see at the time Commissioner Anthony Batts standing around with officers knocking on everybody on Kentmore Callisway door, collecting vi video footage, cell phone video footage from everyone's camera. Because how we knew video were available was solving witnesses on the news. They told us they had videos. And to this day, we have not gotten any video. To this day, we have gotten no accountability and literally, like Erica and Westmore put, you know, in the five days, our struggles, like literally being on the corner, telling them how corrupt Baltimore City policing is, like people thought me and my family was crazy. We literally told them how my brother was murdered, how they hid his body for five days, five whole days. No, you know, there was no reason for them to do that. No reason, but literally they came to, to my family's house on the same day that he was, I'm sorry, not the same day, but the next day after my brother was murdered, basically telling our family what the autopsy was going to say. That took them 154 days to do. Like this is utterly ridiculous, which it was basically complete on the 19th. But I said all this to say, the reason why we basically have no type of accountability because you got to think about how deep this corruption is. And just like with the gun trace task force that was literally around doing everything, they were on the ground literally when my brother Tyrone West was murdered, being as one Ruiz. He is he was a part of the gun trace task force. He was the first killing cop that started the brutal execution of one unarmed man. My brother pulled over, and from that point, he started pepper spraying him, beating him, murdering him, pulling him by his dreadlocks. They called in a fake signal 13 because so much, I'm not even gonna say fake, but because um, Chapman sprayed so much of pepper spray, he wasn't thinking about Tyrone West's eyes. He was thinking about his eyes, so he called for backup. And literally, when the other uh, 11 to 15 maniacs arrived, no one thought about my brother who was screaming, pleading for his life, help, what are y'all doing? Y'all in a victim's name and was murdered in broad daylight. And then they let a 320-pound man, David Lewis, sat on my brother's back. So I said all this to say, and with the new evidence, we took all back to Marilyn Mosley. We took it. And to no avail, she has not met back with my family. Is sitting on her desk collecting dust. And then I see how adamant and eager she appeared to be when she was so-called seeking accountability for Freddie Gray. I think that that was absolutely for the cameras. That's my opinion, but I think it was for the cameras. Because shortly while she's doing all this, facading, here it is, Keith Davis Jr. is gunned down, not 
you know, while the uprising is happening, like literally no accountability, nothing. And for her, and I found out in the book with about the country, I got a monster. I found out like literally, you know, you're doing all this stuff, playing this big old game, like you so cool. Accountability, the speech sounded beautiful. I loved it. I cried. My family was the one who actually got her into office. Like we literally, when Greg Bernstein got out of office because we told no one to vote for this animal, she got in and, and, and what have she done to put my family? Nothing. But play the game. Everybody wants to say, oh, this, that, and the third, but nobody wants to do something. So when it comes to accountability, I blame people for this dog and pony show, the medical examiner's office, the new mayor. Um, not, I'm not sorry, I'm not, I'm sorry, not the new mayor, but Jack Young, thank God he's about to get off. It shows you the divide. Literally, we just had Ryan Dorsey to try to do something so great for families like my family that's suffering. Literally tried to rename a space, a Columbus statue space, something that's meaningless, pointless. I guess the Italians and the FOP paid them off but literally, he beat on that bill. Why he could be worrying about homeless people? You're gonna go veto bill. He needs never to work for this city ever again. And if he tries to, the West Coalition is going to shut him down. So I said also say, I'm still waiting on Merlin Mosley. She hasn't done anything. And then for we to know that Ruiz and Chapman are repeat violent offenders. There's a video of Ruiz. Actually, he had six victims. My brother was a fatality, so he had victims leaped up and after my brother. All this is new. I literally, out of my own pocket, I'm a teacher, I don't get paid much at all, but I took $50,000 of my own money that I had saved up and got my brother's body exempt. Literally, I had to take my name completely, completely out of the, um, the part where we were going to get money, the monetary pays, because they wanted to gag me. You're not going to gag me and shut me up from murdering my brother so I can't tell about Killer Ruiz and Killer Chad. I'm going to keep calling them out. But no one is safe until we get these killers off the street. But if we think that the gun trace task force stopped and this book, after the book was closed, we think that it stopped. No, it didn't. But the reason I'm going to tell you real quick why I'm a part of this book, to know the first victim, and nobody knows this, the first victim of Wayne was my boss in 2010. My boss, a woman that works hard for a school, literally, this animal framed her, framed her, took money, hardworking money that her husband and her established, working, not selling drugs, not committing or breaking the law, but hardworking dollars, actually took $20,000, called this money, like did the work. So I said all of that say that that's that's horrible. And to know that your boss, your boss is in a book, you're in a book about freaking corruption and has still not have changed. I'm sorry for babbling on. Sorry, but I, I could listen, I, I would love to listen to you all night, but I, I need to bring uh Baynard and Brandon into the conversation. So yes. we'll we'll circle back. Uh Baynard and Brandon, I had Jerry Maguire deja vu. You had me at hello. After reading the opening line of your book, I was in love. Baltimore almost had a revolution, it starts. I knew that it was a must read and I knew that I would be reading some much welcome brutal truth. Repeatedly throughout the, the book, I Got a Monster, the individual stories um, that you tell, we see the sociopathy and toxic masculinity play out on steroids, I'd say, with, with Wayne Jenkins and other members of the force. 
Jenkins with his condescending hyper-politeness, calling victims sir while violating their rights, robbing them and even torturing some of them, which is how I would describe what he did to Anthony Hamilton and his wife and his, his entire family in their home. Um, can you talk about the myriad of ways that this culture of toxic masculinity permeates the Baltimore Police Department and serve to normalize the behavior of these officers in the Special Enforcement Squad? You want me to start that, Brandon, and then you jump in? I mean, it's crazy when you think about what they were doing without some of our cultural, uh, you know, the way that we're habituated to thinking about police. It's really the Iliad. Um, you know, you have this band of pirates riding around and they see people in palaces, nicer houses than they think they should have. And they decide they're going to rob them. And they use every war technology that we have to break in their houses, to take it. Um, and, and you see it play out in so many different ways because, and they're almost all, although one of their lieutenants was a woman, uh, Lieutenant Marjorie German, all of the people who were really involved in what they were doing were men. And um, they had this risk-taking, gambling, misogynistic, some of the, you know, when the Department of Justice report came out, I interviewed and, and listened to all of the um, testimony that was given to the Civil Rights Division there about the treatment of sex workers by Baltimore Police Department officers, many of whom were associated with the plainclothes units. And the plainclothes units really are the biggest problem with this. They're trying to be macho. They're trying to go out and prove that they are warriors rather than defenders. Um, and, you know, it comes to, at one point, Wayne Jenkins pulled over a... Um, pulled over a guy, they take him, he takes his phone and then starts trying to text his, the guy's uh, partner to see if she will say anything incriminating, pretending that he's him, uh, that he's the guy, and then just starts asking for nude pictures um, just as a, a way to destroy these people's lives. When he found out that the sort of the main case in the book, uh, that the guy had, was hiring the lawyer that he didn't want him to hire, Ivan Bates, uh, they went and stuck, faked a note and said that the, the guy had gotten someone else pregnant and stuck it on the wife's door to try to break up the family there. There's this really disregard, a, a piratical disregard for every kind of, um, you know, any kind of social grace that is, is not just brute force, masculine brute force. And uh, maybe like the way that that links in with, with the opioid epidemic and the way the story plays out would be something a good place that you could jump in Brandon. Yeah, sure. I mean, one thing I would add would be that, um, you know, when we were learning about this scandal more in depth during the trial at the beginning of 2018, you would see the officers testifying, you would see, you get to hear some wiretaps. Um, what was really compelling was and disturbing was you saw the sort of game of one-upmanship among each other and the sort of constant, you realize that's the culture of policing, this sort of hyper-masculine nonsense, but like you would see the way that like there's a moment in the book where they um, chase someone, they cause a crash and they wait um, rather than help the person because they don't want to get caught for chasing the person. Um, and in that audio, you can hear one of the officers, Herschel, kind of making jokes about it. And that's really disturbing because it just feels like this sense of like how far can you go um, and you, in terms of, you know, 
the the sort of one-upmanship of cruelty that they were doing and there's so that's an important kind of element of it that is partially why we really decided to tell this through scenes as the book is sort of to us we're sort of thinking of it as very cinematically or like a novel where you have scenes rather than us sort of uh, pontificating so we sort of start with that frame that senator carter mentioned of like baltimore almost had a revolution and that political frame sort of allows us to tell the story and we hope that these ideas are seen through um sort of related to this toxic masculinity of these the opioid crisis really the overdose crisis is a part of this book because it speaks to the failings of the investigation the failings of oversight because what was happening with these cops was they were basically discovered because the feds were trying to catch people that were dealing drugs and trying to charge people with who dealt drugs with overdoses as a result of those drugs which is a really bad policy in general to charge people with murder for dealing drugs. Um, and so what happened was through one of these drug crews, they were, the FBI was investigating, which is a black drug crew that was essentially selling to white folks that were coming in from the County. They got onto a wiretap to one of the cops. And so even the way they fell into the story ties to this sort of real look at justice or criminal justice or policing from this very sort of carceral perspective of, these bad people dealing drugs they did this you know because another thing we always try to stress is like the civil rights investigation that Boehner mentioned was happening while these officers were um doing all this and the doj didn't catch it and it was all caught basically by accident they fell into it and that's something to really stress and then when you put that on top of the idea they're really the government was really trying to enforce really fraught and stigmatizing perspectives on drugs and drug enforcement that led to this it's really just another layer that makes the story really frustrating and sort of shows how little has been learned about how to curb policing or how to fix and adjust other problems in the in the culture like uh issues with drugs and the drug war thank you something so we 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 have to only a few more minutes because we have to get to questions but what you said drives me into the final question I'd like to ask you in, in this segment, which is the fact that this happened post Freddie Gray, post time that the Department of Justice found patterns and practices decades long of systemic discrimination um, within Baltimore Police Department and the way it conducted policing. My question is, how is it possible that the internal affairs divisions? How is it possible that the state prosecutor, how is it possible that the commanders and police commissioner were unaware of these activities until the feds um, came in and conducted that investigation and, and, found, and found out what these officers were doing? How, is it possible? How is it possible? And do you have any knowledge of, or any sense of any efforts that have been, been being done now or since to take a deeper dive into that behavior beyond the gun trace task force. Brandon. There we go. Um, I mean, I, I think that the sort of most, the generous, the only generous reading you could possibly give the department and its command is that they were uh, supremely incompetent and unaware and uh, like a profound lack of accountability and transparency allowed this to spread. There's almost no way that they wouldn't have known about some of it. Um, you know, we certainly like, you know, some as high as sergeants have been indicted and in other indictments um, that were in charge of these guys. Um, and then you get a sense that command knew, knew th these kind of different elements of it. 
Um, and so what I do think that happens is that the looking the other way when you're so focused, this goes back to the first question about sort of what, how we see policing. If you see policing as this uh, uh, experiment that needs to put people in jail and keep the city safe and provide the illusion to the political leadership that there's, you know, things are in order, then you're really willing to look the other way and not question how they're doing the arrest. And that's kind of the place to start. You know, I'm kind of hedging here because I just, I have my own theories, but I, we only, we weren't able to prove empirically that, you know, these people knew everything. And also, as you see in the book, the kind of lies and the way that the lies have been handed down, it's sort of this uh, dirty cop wisdom. Like you compartmentalize your units, you tell different people, different things to sort of put these walls up but if you see that even those walls are up that kind of prevent someone from knowing all of the truth like a commander the simple fact that they were making so many arrests and so many gun arrests should have been an indicator to anyone that was interested in the citizenry and not only interested in statistics interested in being able to put a bunch of guns on a table and say yesterday the gun trace task force captured these guns on the street baltimore is safer now because there's you know, five less guns when in fact we have something like 30,000 to 40,000 guns flying around in the city at any given point. But that that kind of looking the other way, I think is absolutely true. It's hard to, you know, um, there are some of these accountability work groups and stuff the city mm-hmm. has had are um, sort of a focus you see at those, including one that one of our characters in the book, Ivan Bates spoke at, where he really stressed like these gun convictions were just not going through. So that's how I think the state's attorney's office, even if you want to take a generous reading of how they operated, that like, if your officers can't charge a gun, they can't really do any, like a gun case is pretty easy, right? Did he have the gun on him? Yes. Okay. It's over. Like that's how they work. If you can't prove that someone had a gun or your cops aren't showing up to say that basic thing, these people are then having these cases dismissed. It should have been another red flag. So the seizure of the gun should have troubled people in power and then the way the guns weren't being prosecuted, even if they were somehow sometimes legitimate arrests, should have also really been a tip that there wasn't anything, uh, you know, things were not on the up and up. I mean, one interview we did, someone compared it to like something like the performance enhancing drug scandals in sports where like everyone's like, I don't know how that guy's hitting a lot of home runs. I'm not going to ask. Like that's kind of that idea. How are they getting all these guns? We're just not going to ask. And to add one thing real quick, the one policy thing that prevents IAD from being able to to stop them is they're not allowed to do patterns and practice investigations, like the kind of investigation that the DOJ did, where they look for patterns among officers. So if you have, as they did, uh, a dozen Herschel complaints, you can't compare those complaints by policy and say, oh, he's doing, he did the same thing on to all dozen of these people. You have to look and every single complaint separately and pretend that the others don't exist. And so you, you're trained uh, not to notice patterns, or if you do notice them, you're not allowed to look at them. And then on the, on the court side, the number of times we saw judges who were willing to, to sign warrants that they shouldn't have been signing, saw prosecutors ignoring body camera evidence that showed the officers breaking into houses, saying, well, it was after the arrest, so it kind of doesn't matter. And then judges saying, well, you might have a good lawsuit, but not, uh, no, it's almost like when, when reporters like us said after the 2016 election, oh, we're, we're not going to do the horse race coverage anymore. Uh, and of course we did, but the, the um, courts really, it, it, prosecutors and sometimes defense attorneys as well do the horse race kind of thing. Did I win or did I lose rather than did I achieve justice or not? 
Can I, can I add something? What I love about I Got a Monster and the fact that these books are coexisting together is, you know, it taught, even when I, when I talked to Tawanda, when I talked to Jenny Egan, who's another character, um, anyone who had had any, you know, real deep experience with law enforcement, um, you know, if someone came in blind and just interviewed them about what they had seen or experienced, you would truly think they were crazy. You'd be like, there is no way. There is no way. And that's kind of what I would say some of the media has done to people like Tawanda um, and others, you know, for, for, for decades. Um, you know, the consent decree came out and, and Black folks were like, yeah, we, we've been saying this, um, you know, and everyone was like, oh my goodness, they are pulling people over for, I mean, it's, it's what I love about this book is it just shows how ingrained and insidious and, and depraved some of these experiences can be because otherwise, you know, you really, really wouldn't believe it. Um, and, and I, I mean, I, we didn't even get into some of what Tawanda went through um, after um, her, uh, the, after she had mm-hmm. exhumed her brother's mm-hmm. body and, and did, did the mm-hmm. autopsy um, and some of the, some of the very um, strange experiences she had around her house, outside of her house, um, that once I was reading, you know, Boehner and Brandon's book, I was like, this is completely and utterly possible. Actually, I'm surprised it didn't escalate. Um, and, and so that's, it's just so incredibly validating. Um, so, so I just, I, I just wanted to, to throw that out there. And I, I, I have theories too on how this could have happened, but it just it's it's hard it's hard as a reader to believe um that that people didn't know Very i'll just say tell me about it and you know we can all attest to the years that the general assembly turned a blind eye and pretended that those of us that testified on these issues were crazy and making it up but listen we're, we're getting short on time Sorry. i want to hit the questions but i want to do it sort of like a speed dating thing so I'm gonna I'm gonna say the question and then someone just give the quickest answer so that we can try to get through the list before the, the, the clock runs out, okay? Okay. All right. Let me see. I've got to get back to the top now. Um uh, I said be quick and now I'm not because something's going on with my screen. Okay, if BP if, if Baltimore Police Department is a special interest group, and this question is from Mike Quindian. Um it's, if it's a special interest group, why do they over, why overwhelmingly do democratic politicians cater to their many deleterious needs and subsequent criminal activities? Uh, that's probably a question better suited for me. And I would say because um, tradition and, and power and money, um, and it's probably a longer answer than that, but if anybody wants to add to that, that's fine. Uh, real quick, I would just say that, um, not being interested in police accountability is a bipartisan issue in this country. Like we had maybe the largest protests in American history over the summer against police violence. And we're uh, debating defund the police or pretending we don't understand what it means. You know, I think that like, that's the answer in a way is like uh, not holding police accountable is because it's such a powerful special interest group, maybe the same way, you know, we can't deal with the climate crisis or um, other issues like that is because it's an incredibly bipartisan issue. Both sides kind of agree. We don't, touch the police. I had a question from Bill Blake. Uh, in Westmore's five days, 
which I'm enjoying, he nevertheless speaks rather negatively of the uprising after the police kill Freddie Gray. After he speaks negatively of rebellions in general, referring to them as riots, however, as Douglas wisely said, there is no progress without struggle. In fact, for the 30 years prior to the murder of Freddie Gray, in spite of hundreds and hundreds of cases of police brutality and murder, only five Baltimore cops were ever indicted for brutality during those entire three decades. In contrast, in less than one week, six officers were indicted for the death of Freddie Gray. The rebellion did that. And yes, those cops were not found guilty and not incarcerated as they should have been, but without the rebellion, they wouldn't have even been indicted, which was which was more than happened previously in the previous three decades. So my question is, what is your opinion of the uprisings and revolution as components in the struggle against police brutality and racism? Erica? Um, yeah, I'm gonna answer really diplomatically and answer and, and invoke what Wes, how Wes has answered this question. I would just say, you know, a riot is the language of the unheard, a very wise man once said. Um, and, and whether or not um, it was responsible for the indictment, I think Tawanda probably has more thoughts on what led to the indictment of the, of the officers or the charges, I would say. Um, you know, I think that's that's very much up for debate. I don't think that we can say that the it was the the uprising that that led to that um, unequivocally. So, okay. can I add real fast? Sure. Yes. Yeah. No. So I I kind of like feel both ways because I feel like, as, especially with my family being out there peacefully, not turning up anything, we weren't hurt. But it's just said that we live in a capitalist system and until things start burning down, that's when it, it becomes real and it's sad, but it's reality. In any type of uprising, you see that and then here comes, you know, they want to pretend like they want to do stuff, but it's until that happens. So that's just my take in. Thank you. Thank you. I want to chime in because I, real quick, sorry, is uh, the one thing I'd add is like, you know, if you understand the uprising, as uh, uh, Bill's question suggests, that it's sort of a proto-political insurrection, um, and you know, it's completely reasonable to respond to violence with violence, which is what happened um, during the uprising. Uh, that's it. Kind of explains itself, I think. The only thing I'd add is some way that I've kind of begun to interpret the pro- the announcement of the charges is that it was a kind of deeply conservative with a lowercase c decision because what the charges did was squash the insurrection the result was with by charging the officers we are going to let some of the pressure out we won't have a revolution and so i think it's kind of another way to think about charges and how progressive prosecutors start to understand these ideas of reform and police accountability is that and i think in baltimore with five years to look back i really see it as a deeply conservative and uh a, you know, anti-revolutionary decision to prosecute those officers because I think it's exactly what stopped a truer, larger insurrection from happening. Got it. Um, I got a monster question by anonymous, an attendee. The current mayor vetoed a memorial for victims 
of police violence, so it would not offend police. Do you think silence represents complicity in the police department's bad actions? Who do you think is responsible now for the bad actors in the police department? The state's attorney, mayor, governor, FOP, who? Anyone? I, I think all of them. Every okay. I think each and every last one of them are complicit as to why the things are being done the way they are. It's like their team is not just taking down bad officers or bad attorneys. It's like all of them work together against the people. And it's just sad. And I'll add to that that I think we are responsible as well. I'll add to that that the citizens of Baltimore are, are also responsible. And especially the white citizens who are willing to look the other way and we used to look the other way because we were scared of crack or something. And we're like, oh, and so we let people be stopped and frisked and zero tolerance over drugs. And now we're not afraid of drugs, but we're afraid of guns. And so they just switched it to a war on, from the war on drugs to the war on guns. And now white people are okay with all of the abuses that happen in East or West Baltimore again, as long as they're not happening in, in their neighborhoods. And so I feel that like the citizens of Baltimore and, and especially the white citizens are also responsible. We expect to be protected by the law and uh, we expect other people to be bound by the law. And, and that's one of the biggest problems that uh, allows things like the gun trace task force to happen is us. From Ada Kwanzaa, two questions. Does the Maryland State Court of Appeals recent rulings on James and Potts cases put to rest any concerns the General Assembly had about restoring local control of BPD and the impact of higher caps on tort liability for local and state agencies. And the second question is to Baynard's point about the, the judicial system enabling the gun trace task force, what actual reforms can prevent similar police misconduct from continuing to happen? Would you like me to answer? So there are continuing discussions about local control of the Baltimore Police Department and I agree that the tort liability um, claim that was brought up a couple of years ago has, has been um, negated. And so I do think that we're closer to doing that now. And there's a whole myriad of reforms that we are pushing. Um, I'm leading a bunch of them. The Black Caucus is behind many of them. And it begins with the repeal of the Law Enforcement Officer Bill of Rights, redefining use of force standards, um, creating real accountability mechanisms, and um, extracting police disciplinary records from the Maryland Public Information Act so that they aren't protected under that and described as personnel records, just to name like three of about 20. <laughs> Anybody else want to chime in? Okay, from Shanika, what made you interested in writing such a book with regard to the focus on police corruption? Anyone? I mean, I, th I think that for Boehner and I's book, there's a lot of reasons we felt like the story illustrated bigger issues. Maybe the one I'll just throw out there to keep us moving along would be that when you hear citizens, as I've heard being a reporter telling you that the police operate like a gang and you're trying to kind of unpack that idea. And then there's a federal indictment that basically says they're operating like a gang. It really allows you to get deeper into the story and explore and unpack it. And you don't have to sort of do the throat clearing or the hedging or whatever, where you try to explain why people feel this way. You have sort of this very 
strange moment where the FBI and Donald Trump's DOJ inexplicably felt like they had to indict these cops. They were that bad and charge them as, as if they were a gang or like the mob. That's just a really good, it gives us really stable ground to tell the story and unpack those ideas in a more uh, detailed way and not having to sort of just be like, here's why people think this. Like if the FBI thinks you kind of can move along and get a little deeper into it pretty quickly. Thank you. We, we are only a few minutes left. And so I'm going to pose um, the opportunity for each of you to make a final statement, but I'd like to preface it with a question. And my question is corruption is embedded in police that are forced to abuse and oppress poor black people. The people become their chattel. So how do we end this cycle? It is important to tell the stories, but what do we do about it? And each of you one minute, and then I think that we're out of here. Maybe I'll start. Um, we could end the drug war, be the good start. And I just mean that as a start, that's not the end of it, but stop uh, using the war on drugs and the logic of the war on drugs, which as Bayard sort of said, and as the book shows, has been expanded to things like the war on guns and other forms of just finding every and any other way to incarcerate people. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess like one more thing real quick to, with my parting moment would be like, just wanted to really, uh, praise and say that five days is a really great book and i love that these two books exist together and they kind of are ones ours is almost a sequel to that book i love that they both have a similar sort of narrative style and really look at characters and people affected by this on a lot of different levels and it's a really great way i think to tell this story and i think it's sort of really cool that we have these two books happening around the same time a a smart national book reviewer maybe should have noticed it and written a book about written a review of both of them but thanks brandon um i would just say i mean we didn't i i certainly didn't set out to write a book about about police um corruption and and i certainly have many thoughts um that and and but i can't be advising on policy i i would just say that i think what these books show is that this cycle of oppression is literally baked into in, into into everything. It's cyclical, it's perpetual, um, and it's enabled by um, political leadership, by policies, um, by the oppression that Black people, um, especially in Baltimore, um, have been subjected to by 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 various institutions, um, and I, I I really believe that you know where I am right now in this moment, <clears throat> um, having gone through this the process of writing this book, that it has been largely um, a lack of accountability that has allowed this to continue. Thank you, Brandon. And then to Wanda. So I think. I mean, Bainer, I'm sorry. No problem. I mean, I'm so happy to be on this panel. I, I, I think that there's something about the people on here with journalists and reporters and activists and, and um, politicians, although even uh, more than, than just politician with Senator Carter. And, and so I think having conversations like this goes some way and doing the kind of reporting that we're doing, but I think we really have to 
think about the the willingness that we are we're giving police the control to let them do this as a city as a country we're the ones who are making these decisions that stand for this and allow for this to happen and so i think that that people need to really think about what they want in their own communities we we did a lot of work after this we did a story for the intercept on uh safe streets and an idea of harm reduction and and you know the the uh cure violence approach is that violence is contagious and police bring violence into our community and yet we expect them to solve the violence in our communities and i i don't think that's the way we can think about it and this pandemic gives us an opportunity to rethink it as public health to rethink racism as as public health to rethink policing as public health issues and crime as public health issues and think about them in that light rather than acting like people who just uh, you know, refuse to wear masks running around uh, in, in the equivalent of, of our police world. And so I, I think that it, it really a lot more lies on us than the citizens than we think does. And last but not least, Tawanda, can you close us out? Yeah, so I wanna thank everybody and especially the authors of the book writers, just for letting our truths be told. And I want people to realize that when you're reading this stuff, this is our reality. But until we come from a place where we're accepting this being complacent and not stepping up to the front line, no matter what, when they said the war on drugs, that was the war on black and brown people. Let's be crystal clear. So we're more than hashtags and body bags. We're more than being six feet in the dirt and pictures and buttons on t-shirts. Our lives matter. And we just got to keep our fist up and keep it, keep fighting peacefully until we get accountability. Until we win, we're never going to give up. All case matters, and we need to make sure that they reopen all these cases ASAP. And one last thought, and I'm out. All these commissions need to stop rewarding these killer cops. Commissioner Davis, he gave all, you know, he gave Wayne Jenkins a reward, as well as Louise and all that, and even the new commissioner sat with my family and then turned right around and gave Louise an award for killing us. Enough is enough. We tired of the dog and pony show. Thank you. Thank you, Tawanda Jones, Brandon Soderberg, Baynard Woods, and Erica Green. Thank you for five days, and thank you for I Got a Monster. Thank you, OSI and Enoch Pratt Library. It's been a wonderful discussion. Peace, we're out. Thank you, Senator. Thanks, guys. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.